Ralph Moss. I've known Dr. Ralph Moss for over a decade now, and it's such a pleasure to know Dr. Moss and his history as it relates to his research, writings, films on all things cancer treatments, whether it's integrative, complementary, alternative cancer treatments from all over the world. In my mind, Dr. Moss is the world authority on that topic. He's gone to many clinics around the world to determine what, what are the best cures for, for cancer. Since 1974, he has written over 12 books and three films about cancer, sharing the best practices in the prevention and treatment of cancer, as well as a real critical look at cancer drugs and other industry practices. Little did he know that in 2015, he would be diagnosed with prostate cancer, and that's when our relationship became a little bit tighter. Um, his incredible story and challenges is written in uh, the Moss Report, which you can look at at themossreport.com. By utilizing best conventional medicines combined with his own uh, methods, um, Dr. Moss is prostate cancer free. Uh, this this particular podcast was supposed to was supposed to be uh, one uh, episode, but it turned out that we 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 had to make it into multiple episodes. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Laetrile or amygdalin, the research behind Laetrile for cancer treatments, the history of Laetrile, and is it worth consuming now? My conversation with Dr. Ralph Moss. Let's go. Welcome to the Dr. Geo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Geo, where it is my pleasure to help you with your prostate health and how to live longer with age. Today, I have the great pleasure of having Dr. Ralph Moss here on the pod. Ralph, thank you for being on. It's a pleasure and it's wonderful seeing you. It's been a while since we've last seen each other. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. Look you look great. You look great. Ralph, <laughs> we you. met um, over a decade ago, yeah. I want to say, already, right? Um, yeah. I mean, of course, I knew Ralph Moss, the legend, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the myth. Um, but it, through your work and uh, with the Moss reports, I've always been a fan. Um, and we met at a cancer conference. And, and we, I spoke about prostate cancer. You spoke about the things we're going to some of it uh, some of the things we're going to talk about today um and um you know we become great friends uh, uh after that point so anyway i just want to publicly say that i appreciate you and uh, you as a person you your wife and certainly the Thank work you. you've done to bring some clarity into this very uh challenging disease uh and i'm 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 putting it lightly which is cancer so take us back ralph if you don't mind and to the Sloan Kettering days. And if it starts before that, I don't know that story uh, in terms of your trajectory into getting heavily involved into cancer and then looking at all sorts of integrative therapies for the disease. Take us back. When did that start for you? 
Well, it really started June 3rd. 1974 at about 1974. Yeah. 9.05 AM or so. Give it a minute or two. So I was hired as the science writer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center and later promoted to assistant director of public affairs and one of the assistant directors of public affairs. And um, it was a dream job because what could be, you know, I was interested in science, obviously, but I hadn't had an education in science. My PhD was in classics from Stanford. So I had gone in an almost diametrically opposite direction. Interesting. And I'm still, I'm one of those bicameral people. I have an almost equal interest in science and humanities. So how do you combine those two? And I also had a passion for writing um, and was almost like a born writer. Uh, right. It was what I, what I always envisioned myself doing. What profession I would be in was always secondary to the fact that my life was going to be bound up in writing and reading. So, and was Sloan at that time, Ralph? Was Sloan yeah. like the cancer institute that most people think it is today? It was. There were only three cancer centers, really, in the country. Mm-hmm. Sloan, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Dana-Farber in Boston, and MD Anderson in Houston. Right. That was the template for the later development of these dozens of comprehensive cancer centers around the country. And the war on cancer had just begun. In other words, it, the, the act was passed in December of 1971, but by 74, it just, you know, they were just getting, their, getting on their feet Mm. And there was money available and things were gearing up and things were happening. Um, I, I guess at that time, the big excitement was chemotherapy still uh, because there had been um, tremendous progress made in the treatment of pediatric cancers, especially the kind of leukemia, acute leukemia in children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that and some other things, there was a big infusion of cash and interest and, you know, Time Magazine covers and all the rest of it. And so I walked in really just at the very beginning of this massive enterprise that's turned into this, you know, industry, really. Right. Um, and and interestingly, there were four main leaders of Memorial Sloan Kettering. And three of them were immunologists. Mm. Um, even at that time, it, the, the, the more forward-thinking people in the field uh, understood that immunology, or what we would more precisely call cancer immunotherapy, immunomodulation, whatever you want to call it, was really the ultimate goal. Uh, the chemotherapy had, unfortunately, had the one of the main drawbacks was that most of the chemo drugs in use at that time, and still pretty much true, diminish immune function. And so when it was pulling in the opposite direction, although you, in a rapid growing disease like acute leukemia in kids, you could make a lot of progress just simply by mowing down billions of cells, um, and then you're relieving the pressure and the burden of these abnormal blood cells. But most cancers didn't work that way. And we knew then, they knew, I was just a complete newbie uh, to the field, but Mm. they knew that um, 
ultimately, we would rely on our immune system to, uh, to fight cancer. So the question arises, Gio, how did they know that? Yeah. Well, they didn't, you would think, well, they had some, some laboratory experiments that showed this. But if you trace the history of this back, and I'm a trained, was trained as a classicist, was partially trained as a historian, and his historical perspective has always been my perspective. Yep. Something Aristotle taught mm -hmm. uh, to always look into the origins of your field when you start going into something new. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so uh, if you look at the history, one thing glaringly stands out, and that is that a doctor at Memorial Sloan Kettering named William B. Coley was treating cancer with a mixed bacterial vaccine in the 1890s and and beyond. He died in uh, 36, he retired in 34, but especially in the period from about 1893 to 1911 or so, um, he was injecting pa cancer patients with killed bacteria, two in particular. Mm. One, one was a strep and one was a different one that helped the strep and maybe had some anti-cancer activity of its own. And there were over a thousand, he treated over a thousand people, and then there were about another thousand who were treated elsewhere. And his daughter, Helen Coley Nortz, whom I got to know, she compiled in a, in a very, very meticulous way uh, all the cases that were known to her, were still known in the 1970s. She was in the process of creating this series of monographs when I, when I was working Mm -hmm. at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Her, her main scientific um, partner, really, and, and sponsor, I don't want to say mentor, because she was in some ways the mentor to, to the scientists. She was so learned in this particular area. But her partner uh, in this enterprise was Lloyd Old. And Lloyd Old was a vice president, one of the four biggies at Memorial Sloan Kettering. He was the vice president of Sloan Kettering. And, mm. uh, and then he, they founded the, or she founded the Cancer Research Institute, and he was the first scientific director of Cancer Research Institute. So this is where it came from. Mm. This was all behind the scenes because Coley had, even at that time, when I was working at Memorial, he was on the quack list of the American Cancer Society um, that was called Unproven Methods in Cancer Management. He, he had his own little chapter in the book on unproven methods. So this was, this was extremely interesting and controversial because the thing that behind the scenes we were being told and obviously was, was being promoted as the future of cancer research, namely immunotherapy, was actually officially, or is quasi-officially, a quack treatment. Was Amazing. in the same category as carbiazin and laetrile and 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 whatever else was was on that list. <clears throat> when, so, did Laer, when did yeah. the laetrile? Certainly, for the audience, yeah. fast forward. <laughs> yes, and now <laughs> immunotherapy yeah. is. How many years later, you know, 50 years yes. later, yes. It's, it's the, you know, for, one of the main treatments that have been it, investigated uh, and looked right. at and, 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 and a it's viable more than option. That. It's the fourth modality mm -hmm. in cancer. It became the 
the, the for after surgery radiation and chemotherapy it became the fourth modality others there were other contenders for that but it became the fourth modality in other words with certain kinds of cancer today you you will be primarily treated with immunotherapy treated right. first with immunotherapy and then only later if necessary with chemo so yes it 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 won and i'm trying to say in my long-winded way that it it came out of a so-called quack treatment. This is, to me, extremely important to emphasize. So we, we should this. open up, we should look back and look at all those quack treatments uh, that I've are always, not, don't have, uh, are not a viable treatment today because they haven't given, haven't been given the time or day. Well, it's humbling. And, and, yeah. It's humbling. Yeah. To, to, but this has been the history of science. Many things that were orthodox yeah. not so terribly long ago are now seen as outrageously, ridiculously crazily quackish like like for instance irradiating uh, the thymuses of children because they thought the thymus gland was too big but it's normally big in childhood and then it shrinks over over time but there was a time where this was called uh, I forget the name but it was given a, a big long Latin name and it was a disease yeah. and of course people were given cancer <laughs> I you know, laugh, I, I love, it, I love, a, and a, you're so right in terms of looking at the history. I've, yeah. I've looked at the history quite of the things that I'm into, which yes. part of it is actually prostate cancer, to be very specific, as you know. Yes, but and naturopathic medicine. You know, so naturopathic medicine. You know, of course, we we naturopathic doctors are historically the quacks, right? Yeah. Fast forward to 2020, 2023. <laughs> um, fasting. Yes. Right, because the the oranges of naturopathic medicine is fasting yeah. yes. sunlight exercise yes um and 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 things you know and things of the sort so f you know fasting all the research on fasting intermittent fasting and the benefits of that sunlight exposure you know it's beyond vitamin d but certainly has been looked at with vitamin d right. um hydrotherapy hydrotherapy yes. uh now it's a huge all over the internet you know cold water therapy so it's it, it's it's a very i've always been very interested in these unconventional uh, approaches let's um look at so laetrile uh, let yeah. the audience know what laetrile is it's still a hot topic when i see patients yeah. with prostate cancer eight probably three out of ten patients will ask me Laetrile, you know, should I take yeah. Laetrile? And 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 it's still available in different ways uh, overseas yes. and even out here. So, a, a, a tell us what Laetrile is. Tell us the history of Laetrile and where we are now as a um, as a source for treatment or co-management of cancer. So, thank you for asking that. I love to talk about this subject. Um, it's it's how I really got so fascinated with the field. My position on it <clears throat> is very different than people might think, though. Um, so laetrile, in, in, the in the animal experiments that Morris Lonkettering did mm -hmm. and that everybody else did, uh, the only substance that was tested was amygdalin. Amygdalin. It's a chemical. It's, a, it's in the chemistry, you know, um, uh, books as a available experimental chemical and it's found in apricot kernels in pits of apple seeds mostly in the seeds and the in the pits and kernels of fruit different fruit trees but it's actually 
uh, in sorghum. It's uh, one time we we used to say there was in twelve hundred different plants. It's probably closer to two thousand different plants. Mm-hmm. When it's metabolized, would say broken up in the digested in the body, like in the human body, it breaks up into three components, and one of those is benzaldehyde that gives it the characteristic um, bitter almond uh, smell and taste, and the other one, and then glucose, and then also the, uh, the, third, the third one is uh, cyanide. So mm-hmm. there is a poisonous potential to amygdalin, and the word laetrile, it's a scientific term, quasi-scientific term, let's say, that means that it's been that amygdala molecule has been modified in a certain way to make it a little bit different chemically than the original amygdalin. I don't believe in any meaningful sense that mm. laetrile ever existed. I call that capital L laetrile, meaning this patented, it was patented, uh, substance derived from amygdalin somehow to make it more anti-cancer. It only existed in minute quantities in uh, FDA laboratory and, and University of Maryland in the 19, uh, early 1980s. They did manage to create some, but it isn't. With uh, the goal, okay, uh, Ralph, to make mm-hmm. it um, a patented dr- a drug? No, uh, no. They just wanted to see whether, because there was such a controversy over this. Some people were saying, well, you only tested amygdalin. You never tested the real laetrile. There really never, as far as I can tell, uh, and I've spent much time investigating this, let's say, uh, I don't think that Krebs, who was the original inventor of Laetrile, um, that uh, Ernst Krebs and his father and son ever actually created Laetrile. I think it was just an idea and a name, <clears throat> a patented name, what they were promoting and, and, and colleagues of theirs were selling was amygdalin, common amygdalin, very cheap, very, very readily available byproduct or waste product really of the apple uh, industry because they didn't know what to do with the seeds. So they, you know, you could make this chemical out of it. So that's to clarify what laetrile is and what laetrile isn't. When we talk about laetrile, we're really talking about amygdalin. And vice Interesting. versa. You know, I don't, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, yeah. So is Laetril, so so that I understand, and hold, is Laetril an actual chemical? Or is it like a trade name? It's a trade name. So it's like saying Kleenex. It was, the, it is, it is in a sense, a, a chemical, it's a levorotatory mandolinitrile, which means levorotatory is that it would turn, this is based on Pasteur's work, that it would turn a a plane of light in a leftward direction. But uh, uh, natural amygdalin is, I think it's racemic. It doesn't particularly turn it in one direction or another. So this was an idea that Krebs, who was a, I knew Krebs and I actually, Ben and my son Ben and I stayed at his house once about Mm. 30 years ago. And I think he was, I think he was totally obsessed with the topic of Laetrile and believed, like many have believed over the years, that he had found the cure for cancer and the preventative for cancer. There is no such thing, of course, but that, that's the, that was his idea. And he, he called it a vitamin 
vitamin B17. Nobody else, nobody in the scientific community agreed with him. And that's obviously not true. We know now. I mean, it's excusable given his limited knowledge and the limited knowledge of ethno, ethnobotany and other, you know, anthrop anthropology that he might have thought so. But he was, he was making, making conclusions based on a very inadequate set of data. And in fact, there are populations where they eat a lot of laetrile containing foods like sorghum and have high rates of cancer. I'm thinking particularly of one county in particular in China, astronomical amounts of nasopharyngeal and head and neck cancers, and they eat almost nothing but laetrile containing foods and vice versa, populations where they don't eat any uh, laetrile, including the the Inuit people, but also the Maasai, the traditional Maasai diet, which is almost entirely meat. Mongolia, it's almost entirely meat diet. And they, and they have traditionally have very low rates of cancer in those areas. So a, a, a vitamin has to prevent a particular, you know, condition or known disease and, and the deprivation of that vitamin should bring on the disease like scurvy with vitamin sure. C. Laetrile does not meet the criteria. And this is what the establishment said. So where said. did that come? Because it's yeah. still, again, I, I get emails, things, yeah. vitamin B17. Dr. G, vitamin B17. I have advanced prostate cancer, vitamin B17. And then it became just B17. <clears throat> yeah, so when, that, when they got, right. you know, not to get involved in a big hassle with the FDA, they just dropped the vitamin part. But that's what B17 refers to. So it's, uh, it's an, er to be kind about it, it's an erroneous concept that just is a meme. It just, once it was introduced into the world, it just persisted and continues to persist. And it's just not true. And I, you know, I've, I've examined this very closely. It, my what's bias, the point my bias not would have uh -huh. been to, because I'll tell you what happened to me around this, <laughs> but I'll just say my bias would be to want to say that it is a vitamin and it is a cure for cancer. I mean, I'd be a wealthy man today yeah, exactly. if I, if I could have said that, but of course I couldn't say that because it's not true. So I don't want to. So you're sell, saying both yeah. things are not true. A is not a vitamin. B Correct. is not a cure for cancer. Correct. So what is now, it? Now we, what is so yeah what, so is there, let me but but i have to i have to yeah. tell my story please uh my my briefly my please. dr sugiura story so in the animal experiments at memorial sloan kettering when i was there um there was a doctor named dr kanamatsu sugiura and he was doing animal experiments with amygdalin laetrile and it was very positive in other words, it, it didn't cure the mice, but it prevented metastases in about 80 to 90% of the animals. Uh, and then in the, in the control animals who got a saline uh, injection, there was um, about uh, 80% versus 20, 10 or 20% met uh, lung metastases. And he was a meticulous researcher and a wonderful person and, and was 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 considered one of the greats of cancer research. His his picture is on the cover of the of a standard history of of cancer treatment and chemotherapy. So he was acknowledged as one of the greats. 
admittedly, I mean, he was in his 80s, um, but that doesn't disqualify you from thinking. You could clearly. be president of the uh, of a country. Abs- in your absolutely, 80s. <laughs> you could even be head of the Moss Report. <laughs> So we're so, talking 1970s? 70s, six, yeah. yes, in the 1970s. <clears throat> and, and he repeated this many times, these experiments, and others had partial confirmation of this as well. But my bosses, these big four that I mentioned, and my immediate line of bosses, um, for reasons we could spend the entire show talking about, but they decided that it was politically expedient for them to deny his research and to hedge it around with all kinds of misleading statements until finally, uh, Dr. Chester Stock, uh, may he rest in peace, um, he said, we have found Laetrile ineffective in all the animal systems that we had tested. So they had tested it in, in three different spontaneous tumors in mice and it had come out positive in all those experiments and he lied and told Medical World News, we found it negative in all the animal systems. And when I complained to him about this- uh, Uh, this, uh, uh, Outright lie. Before we continue, let's give a little love to today's sponsor. Our next sponsor partner has a product I use literally every day. I'm talking about AG1. You know, I've been using green powders mixed in drinks for a long time, and it has not always been a great experience, right? The powder clumps up a little bit. It tastes horrible, but you know what? You chug it anyway because it's good for you. AG1 changed the game. In AG1, you have 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day the right way. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, and energy to help you recover and focus and help you age successfully. To make it easy, AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash Dr. Geo to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. No, no, there's no mistake about that. There's no, right, that, that was a, it was misinterpreted. It was, uh, right. A lot of things were, were hedged around and said in ways that were ambiguous or you could possibly take it in, a, in another sense. No, but the, that 1975 that interview, uh, it should have hit me like a sledgehammer uh, because here was an outright lie and he knew it was a lie. He was as close to Segura as anybody else in the entire institution. He was Segura's immediate supervisor. So I knew, and I told him this, I mean, I said it nicely. And of course, and he just, um, he said, I don't care about that. Just go ahead and write the story the way I've told you to, that we, that we refuted the the, the the positive the, the, his positive data, and I refused to do that. And my boss Jerry Delaney then told me I would probably be fired for doing that. And I wrote up my basically my statement, my resign, my refusal to follow orders. And and everybody else in my department, there were seven professional level people in my department, then told my our boss that they were going to co-sign my letter. I didn't ask them to but they offered to co-sign the letter. And there was a full-scale rebellion 
in the department. So they had to, because of that, Jerry said, don't, don't, don't send the letter. And they then scheduled a new test and the new test was complete fraud. And I just couldn't take it anymore. And I helped write a report called Laetrile at Sloan Kettering. And this got me fired um, in November wow, cur- of the courage. Here you are, um, we're talking 50 years ago. So yeah. you were, well, you're 30. still a young person in my I mind. I was in my early 30s. Early 30s. Yeah. This is the two, job. Two kids. This, two job kids. Of a, job of a lifetime. Right. And... Um, and I didn't have much money. I just was gotten on my feet. I think I had $2,000 to my name, living in a rental apartment, two-bedroom two apartment in Brooklyn. You know the story. So, yes, I had a lot at, at stake. I, had, I, I have a wife of 58 uh, years who yes. doesn't stand for any BS and That's certainly right. doesn't stand for any lying. And so if I had wanted to go along with the lie, believe me, I, could, I couldn't have. And <laughs> she, too wonderful. She, she, she would have said, we'll go live in a one bedroom with, four, with the two which kids. Which is what we were facing. Yeah. Luckily, she went out uh, the week that I got fired, week after I got fired, she went out and got a, a job that paid as much as I was making at, at Sloan Kettering. So we were okay. We managed to survive, even though they tried to deny me unemployment um, in sh- uh, payments because they said I had fired myself. A new one, a new right. one. I had to get a lawyer and go to you know and threaten to go to court on that. And then finally, I got my unemployment. And then you know, so Leotril in these animal studies yeah. actually worked. And um, it did. It, it did it work. Worked. They said in, in it, an unusual way because it stopped metastases. Not it didn't particularly shrink tumors a little bit. It shrank tumors a little bit, but you think about that. They weren't geared up to find drugs to to stop metastases, although they should have been because metastasis. When you look at the list, is what kills. Correct. Yeah, it is what kills, except yeah. in a minority of cases. Yeah. So if 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 whatever it is, seventy or ninety percent of people die as a result of the metas with cancer, die as a result of their metastases, that should be job number one. But Excellent. since there were yeah. no drugs that could stop metastases, and to this day they're still lacking, um, they weren't geared up to do that. The only one, the smartest person there. And the one who really understood all who would who would if he was alive and was willing to put his own neck and reputation on the line the way Segura did and the way I did was Lloyd Old. Lloyd Old taught me a lot of the things that I know about cancer. Lloyd Old was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. He he was a a great scientist and a great person, but he had whether you know he was very cautious and he didn't he didn't want to ruin a brilliant career uh nor did the others lewis thomas uh, still famous for his books uh, the lives of a cell and so forth who was president of the center told my boss i don't i don't want to die on the barricades for laetrile if it was a cure for cancer i would do it but because it only stops metastasis i'm not it going only to do stops it. metastasis <laughs> this is what was that, well, that's as close to a cure as one can get. This, especially if it was nineteen seventy, talking about nine, mid nineteen seventies. Yeah, right. So, so, so this drug. When you this said is enough before, to drive and, and, yeah, go ahead. When you said before, okay, it's not a vitamin. No, and it doesn't cure cancer. Right. What you really mean, it doesn't stop 
uh, 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 or, or it doesn't stop metastasis. Is that what you really mean? Because well, right, so because, I don't know. And what yeah. what do you gather from these animal studies in terms of it 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 halted metastasis? So is there value? Because I know that's what a lot of listeners are thinking right now. All right, so you know, I know it's not a cure, but will it halt the metastasis of the type of cancer that I have? Should I go out and find Laetrile and get Laetrile? So here's the problem. Okay, Gio, you. Oh, okay. So um, the problem is, it's a phytonutrient. I mean, I think that could be said with with without having. It's much, a phytonutrient. You, yeah. Yep. Without Which having means much, is a plant chemical that has is a plant chemical. By the way, a big part of the prostate cancer approach with me, yeah. Ralph, when people say, yes. "What are the vitamins?" I says, "Look, yes. there's vitamins, there's minerals, but when we talk about vegetables and things and 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 and, and um, natural botanicals, it's the phytochemicals. These are the plant chemicals that seem to have some protective benefits, and in my mind, cure." Cure they, they, they benefit cancer. the plant. They benefit mm -hmm. the plant, and we we have adapted uh, them or adopted to them uh, because they also have some beneficial effect in us. The the effect in the plant is to usually to produce a poison that will kill off a, um, uh, a, a another organism. That's attacking the plant. I mean, the the, the obvious example is resveratrol, for um, which is found on grapes and is an antifungal. And where is the resveratrol most abundant? In areas that have lots of mist and dew and uh, fog, foggy areas. So, Ralph, is leotrol? A lot of people are asking, and we'll keep calling it Laetrile. I think yeah, you're sure. saying, hey, that's the wrong name. But just for to make things well, simple, never right? We're going to change that, right. <laughs> to make things simple, um, is Laetrile a viable option? Uh, you have mentioned, look, it's not a cure. But man, if it, if it inhibits metastasis, that's as close as it gets. And pretty much with all the things that I recommend for patients with prostate cancer, I don't, I don't ever say, look, you do this, you're going to get cured. What I say is we're creating a microenvironment that's hostile to cancer <clears throat> and so that you don't really – so that we reduce the risk of it spreading. So if that's the goal, and that's certainly the goal with me, is Laetrile an option for prostate cancer or any other cancer? So there's a couple of things. One of them is that because of the controversy that – was raging around this. I mean, this was cover of Newsweek magazine and so forth. And the 50,000 Americans went to Mexico to get laetral treatment. Uh, and the FDA was a full-scale war, really, uh, against the spread of laetral and laetral, uh, the ideas around it. Um, it became too hot to handle. Uh, in other words, you were either for it or against it. And uh, to be for it was to basically ruin your scientific career. And to be against it, you were going up against millions of people who, want, who believed in it and wanted it. The, the problems were that because of that environment, it became impossible to do a clinical, a good clinical study on it to test any of these ideas. So what we had was something that had done extraordinarily well 
in some experiments at Memorial Sloan Kettering with spontaneous tumor systems. But, but, and the one clinical trial that was done was, uh, was performed by Charles Mortel, headed up by Charles Mortel at the Mayo Clinic, who was better known as Dr. Debunker. His job in life mm. was to debunk uh, unconventional cancer treatments, including vitamin C, which has now been validated. Mm -hmm. But Laetrile never got to the point of re-examination and validation. Now, even this morning, I got, I have a, I have an alert in my PubMed and it sent me yet another article showing on the molecular level and the, the level of, of, of laboratory research effectiveness of amygdalin as an anti-inflammatory, <laughs> as having anti-cancer potential. I get these every week, practically. I mean, right. there's there are dozens and dozens of studies that show on the laboratory level effectiveness to laetrile. There's virtually nothing to show on the human level. It hasn't never been adequately tested. And the last thing that Lloyd Old said to me before he passed away about 10 years ago was, I'm sorry, and I wish that we had ever gotten to the point of being able to test this clinically, and it was just left in limbo, as many things are sure. left in limbo. The UFO controversy has been raging for 80 years, and you know, and now that the the Air Force says that they track thing, and we've had these balloons, and who knows what they what they are. So you know, things can remain in a limbo state, a non a non. Um, a non an unresolved state, and I'm afraid Laetrile is going to be in that state for a long time because it's still true that even though most of the people who are involved in the controversy are gone, but their students, their friends, their children, they're still around. So to come out with a positive study in America on Laetrile is an extremely uh, unlikely thing. Who owns um, the patent these days? There's no patent. There is I no mean, patent. there was a patent. It wouldn't matter. The patent is, it, it, as I say, I don't think it ever existed in a meaningful sense. I think they shipped, when they were shipping out Laetrile in the 50s for people to test, I'm sure they were shipping out amygdalin. Or well, maybe they did some hocus pocus over it, but it didn't really, it didn't really change the picture. It's amygdalin that we're interested, in. and there can't be, there can be no patent on that. It's just a naturally occurring. So substance. that's the, that. There lies at least part of the problem. Why maybe Correct. there's the <laughs> there were many problems, right? And there were and it, there were many problems on both sides. If you look too closely, you know they say don't don't ever look at how at how sausage is made or how laws are passed. Well, it's the same thing with sci some scientific studies, how things get to be agreed upon as beneficial versus other things that are, are anathematized. So um, I think that the, the main difference, like why is this different from turmeric? Why is this different from resveratrol or EGCG and green tea? The main difference is if you eat, take too much turmeric, you, you possibly would get a little stomach ache. If you have too much amygdalin or laetrile, you could kill yourself. And this is why- The poison is in the dose. The, the poison is in the dose and the poison, in this case, the, the effect, the, 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 the prescribed dose and the, 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 the dangerous dose are not that far, well, there's a term for that, but there's not, they're not that far apart. And so, there was a plausibility to the 
FDA's opposition to Laetrile because Laetrile was a very bad case uh, case history of freedom of choice for cancer or for or use of food supplements and so forth because there's cyanide liberated when you eat it and the interest I mean not interesting but one of the facts that I discovered about cyanide is that it hits you it isn't something that you know, I feel a little sick a little sicker a little sicker and then you know you fade away or something or you or you you die from the cyanide there is a certain you go along for a certain period of time and then suddenly your hair stands on edge and you you look like a you know hmm. blue in the face or whatever so it's there's no gradualness to the um to the toxicity of it sure because then Whereas if you sense it early enough you can just turn it back a little bit and lower correct. the dosage it's not like that we don't know we and and to this day we don't know what would be the fatal human dose it's two a couple of people died in california two women died from drinking the laetrile that was meant for injection so mm. this tells you something i mean how many apricot kernels would you need to eat before you were in danger well when we stayed with krebs uh my son ben and i in 1990 or 91 we had dinner with him and he served us of course apricots for dessert and he said at that time for what it's worth like he, he, he his his apricots came were served with a uh nutcracker and then you'd take the kernel of the apricot and you'd crack the nut and you'd eat the kernel you know so he said right. you shouldn't eat more apricot kernels than you would eat of apricots in mm. one sitting mm. interesting mm. i mean this was his his theory and i think um that's probably true what happens is because of the desperation around cancer especially advanced cancer and the fear factor around cancer which is understandable people lose their sense of proportion and they invest themselves in one thing or another thing and as i say if you believe as i do in the power of turmeric and um and curcumin well so even if you had a few more than is advisable, there's no big deal, not, no big deal, or you might get a tummy ache or something. This, this substance, they had to pick the one thing, right? That because it's plausible, because it is a kind of chemotherapy, right? Because you're, you're taking cyanide and the other chemotherapies are, are other cellular poisons. So they had a kind of a plausible argument that this isn't just an ordinary food this is a food that can kill cancer so in a way you could see why that would appeal because you would think sure. there's an unknown chemo and they don't want you to have it etc etc so uh but the problem is from the regulatory point of view that uh it truly is potentially poisonous you probably need to eat a bag of apricot kernels in order to get enough cyanide to kill you. Children, it would be different. I could not stand the idea that anything that I would say would lead to the death of a person, much less the death of a child. And, I, right. and although I never would say, go eat a bag of kernels, I knew from my own personal experience that once you put something out there as positive, there are going to be people 
who are going to spin that in their own way and think if a little bit is good, then then the maximum more is better. Is, sure, of course, more is better. And I did come across people when I was doing consult, phone consultations for people uh, who were taking large amounts of amygdalin with no knowledge of what the effect of this might be. They just were desperate. They were looking for a cure. They'd read World Without Cancer or one of these other books about Laetrile. And uh, they were convinced because there are specious arguments to be made if you, you know, in, of the two plus two e- e- equals 22 school of thinking. Right. Um, and, um, and that worried me. It sure. frightened me. I'm not only, you know, not frightened about being sued, but frightened about having that on my conscience. So sure. Yeah, sure. You're, so I can't, uh, you yeah. know, absolutely. I, I, I do some of the work that you used to do in terms of consulting with people with prostate cancer. I'm always yeah. concerned about, uh, yeah, the, 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 your point to your point of turmeric, there's probably no poisonous dose that we know of for sure. Right. Everything. You th- you drink three gallons of water and you go- you'll die in one shot. So everything has a potential mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, death uh, death threatening component to it. But yeah. um, but um, it would take a lot of tumor because I've experimented and and yeah. some research shows it. So the analogy is is right on. So yeah. what are people doing? I don't ever. Well, I can't recommend Leotril A. B. I I don't. But when people say, "Look, I'm taking it," or I'm, I went to Mexico and had IVs that included Leotril, um, or they're taking it orally, where are they getting it from? If they're getting it in the U.S. and when they go overseas, um, do they do? Is it experimental, or do they actually have figured out? No, the right dosage is X for this type of cancer over there, and so. I would say they're getting it from Mexico, and there are, as you probably know, about still about 20, 25 clinics in the Tijuana, Baja California area that treat cancer and other diseases uh, with methods that are generally not used or approved uh, in the U.S. So the one that has the most uh, experience is the... uh, is the Oasis of Hope Hospital. They've been Mm -hmm. in business the longest. That was uh, originally Ernesto Contreras and now Francisco uh, Contreras and Daniel Kennedy as the director. Mm -hmm. So I have some connection, you know, some communication with them. And I like them as people. I knew the father. I knew Ernesto. I visited him in 1976, uh, my first clinic visit ever Mm -hmm. to a cancer clinic. And that was very interesting. And he was a kind man and a very religious person. And I think his intentions were good. I never, when I interviewed him, I certainly didn't get a bunch of BS. Everything he said seemed very reasonable to me. And the patients that I met and I went uninvited, unannounced and, and walked around and interviewed as many people as I could still were, mm-hmm. I was still working at Sloan Kettering when I did this oh. on my own on my own time. Actually, we can go into that next in terms of your world travels. But go yeah. ahead with Oasis and, uh, and, and Leotrell. And, and they Mexico. and so and so um, they. I sp- I've spoken to them recently. They have no data to show effectiveness of Leotrell. They have some data on outcomes of their overall program, but they backed away from making any claims for curative effect of Laetrile in their hands and their eyes. It's just one 
of a number of things that they do of benefit to patients. Sure. And which right, is I fine, mean, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't, <laughs> with my prostate cancer patients, I don't say, listen, eat whatever you want, don't mm-hmm. sleep well, but exercise <laughs> six hours a week. And let's see if the, just mm-hmm. the exercise, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It, it, so it's a multidisciplinary Correct. approach. And in right. my mind, multidisciplinary means the different lifestyle components. So then it's very difficult to tease out, okay, what's the one thing? Maybe, <laughs> Ralph, maybe we're looking at it the wrong way. Yes. Maybe the one thing can be, sure, with the one thing, you can patent it, you can, you know, create a lot of wealth from it, yeah. but maybe we're looking at it, uh, we're barking at the undoubtedly, wrong tree there. Undoubtedly, we are. It's a lot of pathways. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Dr. Geo podcast. You can watch all episodes of this podcast and much more by subscribing to my YouTube channel on youtube.com forward slash Gio Espinoza ND. If you love what you heard today, you can help by leaving a five-star review of the podcast on Apple and Spotify as each review helps us reach more men who are serious about improving their urological health and how to function better with age. And for the latest research and actionable takeaways in the world of men's health and integrative urology, sign up for my newsletter at drgeo.com. I'll see you next time. Now for a brief disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and we're not forming a doctor-patient relationship through this medium. The use of the information and all links associated with this podcast is at the listener's risk and is not to replace medical advice from a physician or a healthcare practitioner. Lastly, thoughts and opinions related to this podcast are my own and may not reflect the views of any institution or organization I'm associated with.